CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad you're on board for us as we continue I think it's episode 134 now. This is great that uh, you're here. Sponsored today by Coin World Plus. I'm Larry Jewett. And I am Jeff Stark. And it is a great plus to be here with you today as we are every week. You know, we're going to do our usual foray into numismatic history and talk about market issues and all that. Uh, But the big thing is, you know, we got to talk to Corey Frampton of World Numismatics and also the U.S. Mexican Numismatic Association because that organization has uh, a big event coming up this weekend. So stay tuned for learning about that. Uh, You know, we know that Numismatics of Mexico are very important here in the United States. There are a lot of folks who collect, and uh, Corey was kind enough to give us some insight into that market area. And one of the things I always wonder about when I sit here and I hear, you know, a lot of times we're talking about the U.S. meant this and, and uh, the, you know, the dead presidents that, and, you know, we just have talked so much about the, uh, the the items that we have here in the United States. And of course, we know that there are collectors and uh, business persons all around the world who uh, we're very fortunate enough to entertain on an occasional basis here with the podcast. And it just makes me think about how things in the world sometimes are maybe even a little different. So when I see a situation like coins from, let's say, Australia or, uh, you know, from Great Britain and some of the new releases type things, I just kind of wonder how, how they do business. And with you having the experience that you have in the world coin market, I mean, I bow down to you on this one. I, I kind of would like to know a little bit about you know, how we find out about the coins that are being released and how we uh, how we know, you know, about these products and if they're they're worthwhile. Well, you're not the only one. Uh, listener Brandon Malinowski reached out because he had the same sort of question. And uh, so we may as well address it here. Uh, Brandon asked us, you know, because he's collecting some coins from Australia, the Zoo Series, and he wants to continue with future issues. He says, my question to you is, what would be the best source to buy these at cost? Should I register with the Australian Mint? Would shipping costs from Australia eliminate any savings buying direct? Is there a source here in the States that provides a reasonable price without a big premium? You know, lots of questions, but, you know, he, he said, you know, wanted to get all, you know, all these things came to mind and he wanted to get it squared away. And, and, you know, the short answer to this in regards to world coins is it depends. Um, the uh, less maybe glib answer in regards to Australian coinage is, you know, there are distributors in the United States who carry this stuff um, in general, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to speak to a specific coin series now. Sorry, Brandon. But in general, if you're listening, uh, you know, World Mints can choose to have any number of distributors on a product 
depending on whether it's bullion or whether it's numismatic, numismatic being lower mintage, higher premium, that sort of thing, right? So, um, you know, there are a stable of world bullion distributors. And you think about companies that carry bullion regularly, and the market is pretty tight. And, and people who, you know, if you pay attention, if you look around online and, and uh, you know, certainly on uh, selling platforms, you'll see who are some of the distributors. And some, you know, I, I know I'm not going to name everyone. So at, at the risk of, you know, missing somebody, please understand it was not intentional. Uh, but, you know, you have somebody like or a company like American Precious Metals Exchange, AppMex. Uh, we interviewed CEO Ken Lewis uh, a while back. You have uh, folks like SD Bullion. You have Silver Gold Bull, I believe. I mean, you know, there's, there's any number of folks uh, in the U.S. that deal directly with the retail public for sales of these coins. And it could be everything from, you know, you want one example of all the one ounce silver coins coming out every year with an animal and, you know, somebody like an Atmex or SD Bullion or one of these others, odds are they're going to have it, but not always because sometimes World Mints will do exclusive deals with certain marketers. There are folks, sometimes you see them advertise in, um, you know, general interest magazines, not numismatic magazines, you'll see them advertise elsewhere in publications trying to gain a new audience, trying to reach new people, and they will contract with a mint. Sometimes it's the Royal Canadian Mint, sometimes it's the Perth Mint or the Royal Mint uh, in the U in the UK, or sometimes it's the Royal Australian Mint. Uh, you know, and, and there's other private mints. You know, there's private mints out there that that can do custom products as well. Fewer that really get engaged with bullion. Certainly, the Pobjoy Mint does a lot of bullion related stuff, also. But suppose you are a a company that sells gold and silver coins because you are trying to encourage people to get them into an IRA. Well, you know, sometimes those companies have a higher carrying cost, as it were, but they have a larger reach because they have advertised for so many years and, and, and spent the money to reach audiences that are maybe beyond the quote-unquote traditional or, you know, the mainstream or however you want to term it. Uh, and so we often see... We've seen the last decade, especially, this is really coming to play. There's been a lot of custom custom mint products, even bullion, and uh, they will enter the market through direct sales channels. Often, sometimes a program you hear rustlings or rumblings that it's not doing well. And so all of a sudden, it was supposed to be an exclusive deal through a company, and you see examples showing up elsewhere at uh, a lower price. We certainly see that with private numismatic stuff, less so in bullion. Uh, you know, a lot of the folks who are big enough to say, you know, I mean, the Royal Mint's not just going to let any old Joe Blow walk in there and say, yeah, I want to do a, a one ounce silver coin with 10,000 mintage. You know, 10,000 silver coins on one hand is not a lot of money you know, for a, for a big investment player type uh, or a dealer. But 
you know, it's a lot of money, <laughs> you know, you, you, Larry and I, and who, you know, many of you are listening, you know, the silver alone on that's, you know, 30, uh, $300,000. So, you know, then you get into the dyes and all that. And I mean, it, it's just, it, it's messy, but so is it a custom product? Is it uh, something that all the distributors are going to carry? That's sort of the first question. Um, is it, you know, low mintage, you know, a lot of distributors or a lot of dealers will make an allocation request. They will ask for, you know, oh, it has a mintage of 400. Well, I want 20 because I think I can sell 20 to my customer base. And the Mint talks to all the dealers that regularly carry their product. And they say, you know what? We have a mintage of 400. We're going to keep 100 for direct sale ourselves. And we're going to send out 300 to our distributors, but our distributors ask for 10,000. So now we have to go, well, you ask for 200, I can give you 10. You know, you ask for 50, I can give you three. That's on allocation. If you hear a, a distributor use that term, that's what that means, that basically the demand from the people who make the secondary market, the distributors, is high enough that the mints have to allocate the, you know, they divide the mintage up uh, so that, um, you know, they can be fair to everyone as best they can. And, you know, if I were going to, and I'm not saying I do would do this, I'm not, you know, don't read this the wrong way, but if I, if I quit CoinWorld tomorrow and I said, I'm going to be a distributor for the Royal Canadian Mint or for the whomever, you know, they'd laugh me out the door because, you you know, you can't just show up on a hot release and say, yeah, I want a hundred of those, you know, get in the back of the line, buddy. There's folks that have been selling for us and working with us for decades. There's folks who buy hundred million dollars of stuff from us every year, you get a little better terms when you're a bigger dog, you know, you, you a bigger player in, in the market. So there's a lot of nuance to this and it's real sticky, but you know, the overall, I guess, theme is there's a lot more lower mintage coins with custom designs being made today. There's a lot more direct marketing from world mints, the Australian mint, Larry and I have both ordered from them. Uh, Larry's ordered from the Royal Mint. I've ordered, uh, I think, from the Royal Canadian Mint. The world is a lot smaller than it used to be in, in so many ways. I mean, you, we look at the historic issues of the coin world. And in the 60s, Paramount Coin Company in suburban Dayton, Ohio, was a big distributor of modern world issues. Because they had the muscle, the, the money, literally, to serve the market and promote those objects and, you know, make money doing it. That model has changed. There are, distri- there are plenty of distributors around now, uh, but it often, especially on a, in an online sales venue, it can be a race to the bottom as far as price. The dealers are fighting for that sale and they'll drop their price to capture that sale, you know, whoever wants it next, you know, they want to be the, the next person to sell it. And to do that, they might have to, to reduce their price. I mean, if you pay attention long enough, you will see that, oh, this distributorship runs these kind of sales on this kind of stuff. You know, some don't ever do it. Some do it every week. You know, it just depends on 
who they are and what their business model is. There's as many objects are out there. There's almost as many business models. And, um, you know, it's, it it can really be confusing and I don't want to, I want anybody listening to this to have a better understanding of it, not be more confused. A lot of the, the firms, the mints, you know, they don't charge that much for international shipping, some of them. And so, you know, is, would shipping costs from Australia eliminate any savings buying direct? Not necessarily. I mean, think about it. If a mint, the mints need distributors, but they also don't rely on them like they used to because distributors offered a floor to the market. And now if a mint says, we're, we're going to carry everything, there is no floor to the market in the sense that they make 5,000 coins they only sell a hundred or a thousand, well, then they're stuck with all these, which that begs a whole other discussion. You know, when you see a mintage number, it doesn't mean all of those coins were minted right away. That's not how mints operate anymore. They might run a mintage based on pre-orders, you know, the items that they've pre-sold and ship those and see how those enter the market and then come back and do a second minting and then a third minting. You know, it just, it just depends, depends on the mintage, depends on the mint, depends on the product. You know, there, there's a distributor here in the U S who's uh, a major player for some issues that they're being released. They're struck by the Perth mint. I believe uh, no one will ever say, but you know, everything about the coin and the specifications, the design, the press images speaks to them being struck by the Perth Mint. And I believe there's a Australian firm that coordinates bigly to issue these. I know that for a fact. And there's a U.S. partner on that in many cases. And whether they partner with the Australian firm or whether they partner with the Mint directly, I'm not really sure. There's a lot of layers to this. Um, I had never heard of till going to the Tokyo show. And and this is bully on me. um, LPM, precious metals in Asia. You know, that's the equivalent of to Atmex here in the U.S. Uh, in, In Germany, there's numerous ones, Edelmetal, there's some with names I can't even pronounce because I don't speak German. Uh, there's Emporium Hamburg does a lot. And in fact, you know, I've seen a couple folks go back and forth or, or go from Atmex to Emporium or go from Emporium to Atmex. I mean, you know, it's a small number of folks, relatively speaking, that are involved in this hobby slash industry. And so, you know, you see people move around a little bit as they learn more and make more connections. So, you know, if a mint sells to a distributor, I don't know of any situation where the mint has an offer to buy those back. The distributor is stuck with them, right? You know, the distributor makes their order. They place their order based on, well, you know, we've sold this kind of coin before, you know, whether it was that thematic, that size, you know, we've sold a one ounce silver colorized proof animal coin, you know, we sell them all the time and we think with this theme, we're going to be able to sell X number of them. And so they order them and that's, you know, they get them and they sell them. They're on under no obligation to order more and there's no recourse. They can't just like, oh, well, shoot, you know, we only sold half of these. We're stuck with these. What are we going to do? You know, oh, we'll send them back. No, that doesn't happen. But when a world mint, 
you know, sells them directly, the Worldman is charging full retail, right? They're not giving the distributor a, a cost break when they're selling it. So they can absorb some of that cost difference to pay for the shipping of a retail sale versus, you know, if, if they sold, sell 100 examples at, you know, half retail to the distributor, well, you know, their guaranteed profit is whatever, but they've also left a whole lot of money on the table, quote unquote. Well, they don't leave that money on the table when they're selling at retail. So, you know, there's more profit motive for them to have that retail sale, but that also does add their cost as far as, you know, it takes more staffing power to fill a hundred orders for one coin versus one order for a hundred coins. I hate to be wishy-washy. I hate to be glib. It depends. I think for the most part, Many of the uh, international firms, and I don't know this about, say, a Royal Mint or Perth Mint, uh, they will often um, batch stuff together and send it over, say, from Australia. Downies will take stuff and ship it to a place in California. California then opens it up and puts it into the U.S. mail stream. And so, you know, they they offer a cost savings on you know, on the shipping the order to the U.S., but it's going to be a while because they're shipping a bunch of objects together to one place, and then it's entering the official U.S. mail, um, notwithstanding all the issues that have cropped up in the last year with, uh, with the mail. But, you know, uh, knowing how things are handled takes some, and you got to ask the questions, you got to be observant. There are plenty of sources in the U.S., uh, if you look, just Googling a topic, uh, a term, you can often find several dealers in the U.S. and around the world who carry the coin. Even, I mean, I was looking for something that was almost 10 years, uh, almost 20 years old over the weekend, and I found it, a German dealer has it, and it's like outrageous to ship here to the U.S., but my friend Sebastian, I asked him, he writes for Coin World, and he said, oh, no, it's free shipping in Germany. So, you know, $60 to ship to the U.S. or ship it free to, to your friend in Germany. And it's like, well, <laughs> make a lot of friends around the world. <laughs> that, yeah. That'll help. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, definitely so. Well, I'm going to put the lid back on Pandora's box here. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be uh, focusing just on not on the whole world, but just on Mexico coming up here in just a few minutes. When we talk with Corey Frampton from World Numismatics and the U.S. Mexican Numismatic Association. But right now, uh, let's get off the modern and go back in time a little bit now and look at where we were this uh, this part of the year as far as the numismatic history goes. What did you find of interest for us this week? Oh, only a tiny little thing that happened 35 years ago. October 20th, 1986. What happened on that day? That was the day that the American Eagle gold bullion coins were released. So that <laughs> certainly not a marginal item of numismatic history. That was a, a big deal in world numismatics, but also specifically U.S. numismatics. Um, there were some other smaller things like October 21st. Let's do a shout out. 1938. That's um, uh, Coin World columnist Q. David Bowers was born. So it sounds like we need to send birthday blessings and greetings to Mr. Bowers shortly. 
And um, yeah, I mean, there's lots, uh, lots of other stuff. The first U.S. note to sell for over a million dollars. And there's so many things that we could talk about. But how do you not choose the American Eagle debut as, as the one you highlight because of how important that was? Yeah, definitely so. Very definitely important. But okay, let's just uh, go ahead. This is the ninth annual convention for the U.S. Mexican uh, Numismatic Association, but they didn't have to have one. They didn't have one last year because of the circumstances. So I'm going to do my math, and I'm going to say the first one was probably back in right around 2011. I could be off by a year or so, but I'm just going to use the 2011 as our point to take a look at Coin World history in 2011. What'd you find in the issue on uh, uh, in October 2011? October 17th, 2011, and I'm looking at page four because of, you know, it's not front of the issue news or, or, you know, front page news, but it is front of the issue news. It's something that didn't end up happening. The headline is Senate bill seeks presidential dollar changes. Well, the Currency Efficiency Act of 2011 was introduced by Senator Scott Brown of Massachusetts. I remember when he was elected. Anyway, the goal of this bill was to get rid of the $1 coin. He said the $1 coin is misleading because it costs taxpayers so much more. A broken law requires taxpayers to spend millions of dollars a year minting and storing coins they don't want. In fact, we have over a billion dollars worth of extra $1 coins sitting idle in vaults, and that's set to double over the next several years. It's time to stop the waste and turn these coins into a collector's item. He is right about a couple things there, and the story follows follows that the Federal Reserve estimated that it has more than $1.2 billion in excess dollar coins sitting in its vaults, and that number may swell to $2 billion by 2016. The coins do cost more to produce and store than paper money, but they do provide lots of seniorage. That's the uh, profit from the face value and the cost to produce. Well, it, it's curious that in hindsight, we can say, oh, you know, two months, less than two months later, then Vice President uh, Biden came out and announced that the presidential dollar coins would not be struck for circulation anymore. So this was a problem, and the problem was addressed shortly thereafter this Senate bill was introduced, and the administration's decision was, hey, you know, we don't need to keep storing these. We don't need to, you know, keep making them. Let's stop making them and just have sales to collectors. And that's what happened beginning with the 2012 dollar coins. I distinctly remember, I'm still still sort of mad about it. I was um, mad at then Vice President Biden because I liked being able to buy the coins at face value and just wanting to have a couple examples. I didn't want to have to buy a roll at a premium from the mint. But that's what I ended up doing to keep my presidential dollar collection intact. And now I'm sitting on a couple hundred <laughs> extras, duplicates that uh, cost more than face value. I hate to spend them and take that loss, but, you know, I'm storing them. I'm, it's, spending, it's costing me money to store them. <laughs> but anyway, why did this bill not suggest getting rid of the dollar note? Instead of, you know, to prompt the um, usage of these dollar coins that existed, well, then Senator Brown represented Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is home to Crane & Company, which has the longstanding tradition of making the cotton paper blend for 
American paper money. So that's why his solution was stop uh, making them instead of stop making the paper money. And, um, you know, ultimately the bill never went anywhere and there were changes. So it's always fun to have that hindsight and see uh, a moment in history that could have gone a different way. Well, and you need to get together a co-op deal. When you're trying to buy a roll of something and you only want one, you need to find, you know, 20 other people who only want one, and then you all go together on a roll. It's kind of like the lottery deal where you get together and put all the money together so you go for the big jackpots. So that's just an, a suggestion in hindsight. We still can do that. But let's take a look at the letters from that issue. Now, our guest, Corey Frampton, had just recently been to the Long Beach Expo. And uh, he was talking about how the coin shows and the comeback of the coin shows has been uh, a topic of a discussion for us in a while. This goes back to 2011. It says the dangers at shows end. I thought it would be interesting and useful to address a phenomenon I recently witnessed during the closing hours of the Whitman Philadelphia coin show. I'd known for some time that the most dangerous time for a bourse dealer in terms of stock security is while packing up one's bourse contents at the close of a show. Not only are case lids propped open three or four at a time, but the dealer must locate the appropriate envelope and box to contain the individual coins being put away. Attention is concentrating right on doing so, and so he or she is less alert to what goes on around them. Other dealers and remaining collectors are approaching and wishing the dealers a safe trip or delivering checks or asking how the show went. I planted myself in the aisle at the edge, not in front of one of dealers' bourse tables, he packed up four cases and was resting before I departed. What I saw in just perhaps 30 minutes really shocked me. People walking by, reaching into the propped open cases and literally grabbing valuable coins or metals with their fingers all over the obviously pristine surfaces. Oh, isn't this pretty? One lady literally reached in, grabbed up an immaculate proof-surfaced heavy bronze Indian piece metal in her palm, and when told to put it down, immediately dropped the bronze medal on top of another medal, undoubtedly inflicting damage. She gasped, oh, I'm sorry, and hurried away. I couldn't believe her audacity or the self-control of the dealer. At an earlier show, the dealer had a $7,000 legitimately rare coin stolen right out of his open bourse case during closing time. It was at this point I really appreciated a professional coin dealer's patience and tribulations during setup and packing up. So when a dealer is busy doing this, it's always best not to distract him or her with questions and conversation and always ask before reaching into a case to examine something. Now you can easily understand why a dealer's response may be too brusque during those two periods. That's from Alan Weinberg of Woodland Hills, California. So again, you know, Common sense, courtesy, all these things, Just we don't need to lose that. We don't need to lose respect for other people's property. There's so many things contained within this letter that just infuriate to, to imagine what would happen if it was you who was victimized by something like this. And so that letter was particularly touching to me, and that's why I wanted to share that letter. Very good, very good. No, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is dealers livelihoods we're talking about here and you know i mean for those of i mean there's the dave Chappelle joke about you know you don't mess with a man's livelihood and and um that's true so it's it's uh, a, a lot of common sense and kindness would go a long way in so many areas and and it's something that you know i gotta remind myself daily but um 
It's a good reminder. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So I, I don't know any, you know, trite, fun way to segue from that to the trivial pursuit, but... Um, I have one. Okay. I have one. I think we need to, before we get into our questions, we need to pause and give a shout out to our recent guest, Barbara Ortiz Howard, who uh, sent us an email, sent us a nice note. We appreciate the fact that she reached out to us, but she also didn't know about how we were going to answer our particular trivia question, and she had a little more insight to give, and I'd like you to explain that. Well, I was locked and loaded for the answer to the trivia question last week, which you know, was about the women on American paper money, you know, named individuals, not just a, you know, allegory, a representation of, of somebody that, you know, is not a public figure, you know, who's a public figure that we know. And so I had the 1886 and 1891, I think it was, Martha Washington note, um, silver certificate, I believe dollar denomination. And okay, you know, that makes sense. Great, whatever. And she reminded us, reminded me, that there's a note with Sacagawea on uh-huh. it. Pocahontas, Pocahontas. I'm sorry, Pocahontas. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm messing this up twice. <laughs> and and it's the uh, 1875 First Charter National Bank note, $20 note, apparently, uh, the baptism of Pocahontas. And there's also an 1880 legal tender note, $10. So, I mean, there's a couple, at least, at least a couple items out there, paper money, that show Pocahontas and... Um, so, you know, I did not mean to overlook that because, I mean, you know, obviously the, the Native history is important. You know, we, we recognize that to the, the slightest with the, he was speaking of dollar coins, with the Sacagawea dollar that nobody hardly ever sees. But uh, there was a time that uh, Pocahontas was shown on American paper money. So that it should be noted. So very good. So then... After answering that question last week, I asked a new one, and the new question was, because we were talking about high denomination paper money and coinage, I said, what's the highest denomination of coin and highest denomination paper money object that has circulated in the United States? And, you know, part of the discussion, you know, why do you not see high denomination coins sometimes? There's a simple reason you say probably the same reason we don't see high denomination bills, no need for them in commerce. And that's actually not exactly what I was looking for, but coins especially are prone to counterfeiting. And so you see that the the divide, the coin paper money divide, there's a certain point where a coin becomes a threat for counterfeiting that uh, nations will have paper money for it instead because they can do the optical variable ink. There's other, you know, other things at play. Uh, Some of them are covert. Some of them are overt as CoinWorld recently reported, but you know, it's a security issue. Uh, The United Kingdom, gosh, going on eight years ago now or five years ago now, I think it was, yeah, 2016, 17, 17, it was 2017, four years ago, that they debuted a new round pound coin that was winged by metallic. And why do they need to do this? Because the pound coin was being counterfeited. And and 
official reports were that only like one in 40 coins was fake. The reality, at least according to some observers in the UK, was that uh, there were many more fakes entering circulation than that official number. And so the Royal Mint had to come up with more advanced security measures and all that. And so it's a fine line for issuers of coins and paper money on what makes sense from a counterfeiting, anti-counterfeiting standpoint, coin or paper money. So, you know, you don't see a $50 coin because if somebody were able to crack that code and fake it, the loss is much greater than, you know, if it were a dollar coin, say. So, and it would force the issuers to embrace more technology and, and, you know, that has ramifications for vending companies and, you know, all this, the supply chain and all that from who they get the metal from and, and so forth. So, I mean, it, it's a many tentacled being. So anyway, what are, do you have any idea what the answers are? Well, I think you just kind of gave one away. I think the $50 coin is the answer from the 1915 uh, pan pack. And I think the the bill I'm going to go with. Uh, we talked about this with Barbara. Was the uh, the the ten thousand dollar that Grover Cleveland and Andrew Jackson supposedly switched places on? You know, I'm not hundred percent clear on recollection on that, but I think it's a ten thousand dollar note, and I think a fifty dollar coin. Well, uh, I wish I could say that you were right on at least one of those, but. <laughs> But you are not. Uh, $50 is a very good guess, notwithstanding my unintentional hint, uh, because we have several hundred-dollar coins in the United States. The whole series of American Eagle Platinum coins are $100. Ah, yes. I remember them now. And and the American Liberty High Relief Gold coin that started coming out in 2015 and then 2017 with the more ethnocentric design. Those are $100 uh, coins as well. You were close. Uh, $50 was, I thought $50 was the answer. And then I did some research and I went, oh no, wait a minute. (laughs) The $100, I forgot the $100. So there you go. That being said, paper money, 10,000 was a fraction of the correct answer because the correct answer is $100,000 because that was the Woodrow Wilson note. Mm, That being said, the Wilson gold certificate was only used for official transactions between Federal Reserve Banks and was not circulated among the general public. So if you want to be, you know, if you want to use circulating coin as the marker, then a circulating note, well, then you could go with 10,000 and that features Salmon P. Chase. Uh, but again, I, I don't know that the, that note ever really circulated among, you know, people. Yeah, it was also used uh, between Federal Reserve banks. So you have to go down to the, was it the 5,000 or, yeah, I think the 5,000 with, with Madison. But we see 500s and 1,000. Those are the ones that were generally, uh, since 1969, have not circulated. The highest denominated note since 1969 was the 100. 
and the market for 500s and thousands in the last few years, the last year, especially year and a half has exploded. Even ratty old, ugly 500s go for $1,200 sometimes and nice ones go for, you know, a lot more. So, and, and thousands are, you know, you can't touch a, a thousand without several thousand these days. So, um, Anyway, you were you were close, good good effort, but uh, ultimately not successful, not accurate with your prognostication or your guesses, rather. So sometimes you learn more by being wrong. Hey, uh, yeah, and sometimes you learn more by shutting up. But here I am, keep talking. <laughs> I, so the question this week, we're we're talking about Mexican numismatics. I wanted to bring it home to something related to the U.S., but while still remaining in Mexico. The New Orleans Mint struck coins from Mexico. Did you know that? Yes. Okay. So the only world coins New Orleans Mint ever produced was a specific type and year, specific denomination and year. So I want to know what denomination and what year Mexican coin was struck at the New Orleans Mint. I thought that was most appropriate given the interview with uh, US Mex NA that follows just in a minute or two. Yeah, and I think now is an appropriate time so I can think a little bit more on that one. So let us go now to our discussion that we had with our good friend Corey Frampton of World Numismatics, who is also with the uh, US Mexican Numismatic Association, and talk about what's happening in their world. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Corey Frampton, who is a co-owner of World Numismatics in Carefree, Arizona, and also the producer of Mexican Paper Money, as well as the executive director for the U.S.-Mexican Numismatic Association. Thanks so much for being here today. Good morning. So uh, the reason we're talking to you today is because there's kind of a, a big thing coming on. And I think a lot of folks in the numismatic space might not even be aware that it exists. Later this week, you are going to be hosting the ninth annual convention there in Scottsdale, Arizona for collectors who are uh, enthralled by uh, the world of Mexican numismatics. Can you talk about how that got started and uh, what's on tap and all that? Let's let's just uh, start from there. Sure. Uh, the association consists of about 300 members. Uh, it's dominantly people who collect Mexico. Now that could be currency, coins, it, uh, stocks, stamps, the whole deal. But but for the most part, it's coins and currency. The association's been in existence now for, oh man, before me. I've been, I've been the executive director for 10 or 15 years, and then before that, another 15 or so. We started having conventions in Scottsdale uh, a nine, 10 years ago now. These are different than a, than a normal coin show, very, very different than a normal coin show in that they are members uh, who fly in. Uh, it's small. There might be 150 or so attendees. Everyone who comes is serious. We don't do any local advertising. There's, there's none of that. We don't want local people attending as though it's a coin convention where people are dragging stuff in to, to uh, sell to dealers. Uh, it is a social event. Very, very focused. Uh, it is includes, uh, let's see, this year we've got six 
uh, different speakers that are coming in from different parts of the country that'll give seminars. And it's very low key. It's, it's more of a social event uh, and a, a, it's a boutique, small convention. And, and education really is the focus as well, besides the camaraderie, right? Yeah, it's sort of all three. I mean, if, if you want to see Mexican and, and by the way, the convention, we, our publications are purely Mexican. But for the purposes of the convention, we include all Latin material. So South America through Central America. And there's quite a bit of that. But if you want to see material uh, from any of those places, it's available for sale. There's nowhere in the world. If you combine all the other coin shows, they don't have this much material in the Mexican and Latin American arena. So you've got the convention part, which is the buying and selling of coins. You've got the educational aspect of it. And then you've got an environment where you've got collectors and dealers sitting on the patio uh, outside the, the conference rooms, just hanging out and visiting and talking about what they like to do and, and learning stuff from their peers. And it's, it's a very open social environment. Now, this is the ninth annual convention. How are you impacted by the uh, pandemic? Did it interrupt the, uh, the, the flow of the uh, U.S.-Mexican Numismatic Association gatherings? It's been interesting. Obviously, we canceled last year out. Most everybody did. Uh, but uh, in terms of what it's done to the collecting community, and I don't think it's exclusive to the, the Mexican community, is we've seen a lot of increased interest over the last year or so. The market is stronger, I think, because of COVID than uh, it would have been. And I, I say that because people are home, bored, nothing to do, and time to spend on their hobbies has been the case this past year. So how, uh, how are you preparing or how do you look what do you see um, maybe on the tail end of this as we come out of this? How do, how do, we, um, how do you keep collectors engaged and, um, and excited, you know, when they have these other distractions, maybe, you know, sporting events have opened back up and all that? I mean, is there a concern there? No, I don't think so. I think historically I always refer to myself as a collector, as a, it's a, a gene issue. I mean, you either have it or you don't. You can't teach it to people very easily. You know, I call it a disease sometime when I start piling up too much stuff, but I, I don't think that changes. I think that all of us who love this, whether it's collecting of whatever nature, and I got a plane going over here, so I apologize <laughs> for the background noise. What, whatever the nature, uh, I think that that doesn't change. I think that all that the, the COVID situation did is give people more time to focus on what they want to do instead of what they have to do. And uh, I don't see that changing. Taking that another step, though, um, it's been interesting over the last 10 years, the impact of auctions and uh, the tendency to not come to coin shows. And we just got back from Long Beach, for instance, and that show was about a third of normal. Part of it was the local restrictions, but it's been a show that's, that's been not as well attended as, as it was 15 years ago. And I think it's dominantly because you can go online and, and do a lot of things online. The US-Mex convention, on the other hand, has been growing steadily every year because the people look forward to it as a social event 
and an educational event. I think that's kind of the future of these things, more boutique-y, more educational, more social. Yeah, you're, you're not um, the central states organization, say, concerned about making a big profit to sustain the organization by the, with the show. You're, the show is the manifestation of your mission in a sense of, you know, sharing information and enjoying the hobby together, it sounds like. Absolutely. We, we're not, our goal in, in, in the association is to not lose money. Aside from that, we don't, you know, there, there's nothing to, it's all volunteer. There's no salaried people involved uh, other than paying an accountant and, a, and somebody to put stamps on journals and stuff out. It's all volunteer. So yeah. it sounds like this is the epitome of what is the strength of this hobby, and that is relationships. And the fact that when you have a gathering like this, with the social aspect, with the educational aspect, all you're doing is strengthening relationships. This becomes more or less a reunion, I would think. That's a good analogy. It's a very good analogy. A family reunion, a high school reunion, all those sorts of things have the same flavor as this does. And it is a a group of people who are very comfortable socially sitting around and talking about family, friends, coins, currency, whatever it might be. Um, It's interesting. We had uh, a a commercial dealer attend a year before last who was complaining because the the hall would actually empty uh, when the the, seminar started happening. So about two-thirds of the day, there's nobody in the the Bourse area at all, uh, but it's part of the deal. And, and, and you have to get used to the idea that this isn't a typical, a transactional convention where everybody's just out to try and make as many purchases and sales as they possibly can in a few days. So what kind of um, educational things can you tip off? What's going to happen at this latest show? And, and what kind of um, groundbreaking research, maybe, or important research has debuted at past conventions? I, I mean, I, I've been aware of this for a long time and unfortunately never attended one because it's just, you know, it, it's outside of what we normally do as far as going to big shows. It's not a big show. But it sounds like it would be so, so informational and, and so valuable uh, to somebody who wants to learn about that. And um, the research is, is a big deal there. And, and you have all the big names there uh, pretty much every year. Yeah, that, that part's really interesting. If you think about the fact that this thing is 30 tables and a couple of hundred people and uh, heritage uh, is there. Chris Bob would tell you that this is his favorite show of the year. Uh, Stax is there. Uh, Sedwick's there, the other major auction companies. ANS isn't there this year. They'll be back next year. They had a conflict. It's a situation where it's driven largely by these, these, the social aspect of this and the ed- educational aspect of it. I digressed a little bit here. Go back to your question. So interestingly, as far as Mexico goes, some of the preeminent researchers of Mexican history when it comes to coin and currency are not Mexicans. I mean, they've got their own group of people down there that are uh, very knowledgeable about a lot of subjects. But for instance, Max Keach, who will be Mm -hmm. giving a talk this year at the US Mex, is in my mind, the world authority on the Mexican War of Independence. 
Uh, he might not say that, but I will. Uh, he's <laughs> in the process of publishing a book that radically changes what people have thought about the War of Independence. Now, that was the first war, uh, war of independence uh, from Spain as opposed to the revolution of the early 1900s. Yeah, you're talking 200 years ago for the, for the one versus a, a little more than 100 years ago for this other. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this is a big year in Latin American numismatics because of the independence movement that sprang up 200 years ago. I mean, there, I, I thought I saw uh, several countries are issuing circulating coins, commemorative coins to mark the 200th anniversary. So there's certainly, you know, <laughs> there, there, this is a, a big year for uh, anniversary as far as that goes. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So taking that a little further as far as what's going on with research and stuff, Max is going to be there. He's in the process of publishing this book. He'll be giving a talk. It's, there's always groundbreaking stuff where you find that in the uh, coin uh, books, the Krause books, uh, they attribute uh, a particular coin to the royalists and when in fact it was produced by the insurgents in a, a, another location and the history books have got it all fouled up. And it, it's not unusual because it was a very chaotic time. In addition to that, um, uh, Mike Dunnigan will be there. Mike will be given a, a, a counterfeit seminar this year. I'm not sure what the topic is, but we go, we take things that are showing up in the marketplace how to identify them, things that are coming out of China, issues that we have with, with different things of that nature and go through them, show samples, whether they're new, uh, old. And then we've got people like Simon Prendergast, who's our, our editor for the journal who lives in London, who is probably the world's authority on Mexican currency, revolutionary currency. And we just incorporated his library into the U.S. Mexican dot org website the association website that contains i don't know there's 10,000 pages in there of historical references sourcing all sorts of things related to the people that produce currency who how why where all that sort of stuff it's interesting that you mentioned about the uh, perception and how history can sometimes be presented wrong because i think a lot of times when there's a lack of education, there seems to be a, you jump to conclusion without any basis of fact. I know very little about Mexican numismatics, but just understanding is because it has such a far reaching history well beyond the 1790s of the mint of the U.S. that there would be so much to learn if you had any kind of historic interest just in the Mexican side, let alone Latin America. That's absolutely right. And, and you have to remember that for uh, decades, uh, well, over 100 years, the Mexican eight real was, uh, was specie here in, in the United States. It was ex an accepted form of currency long yeah. before. They had, they had, their first mint was in 1532. Five. Yeah. Yeah, five, somewhere along in there. Yeah. Yeah, so it's quite quite a difference. Um, I guess that raises a question. I know from covering the Canadian space it, that apparently there are more collectors of Canadian coins based in the U.S. than in Canada. Um, simply, you know, size demographics. You know, the the fact that there's so many folks uh, near the Canadian border. 
it seems like that might be the case for Mexico. Um, but you know, I, who's to say what, what, what's your sense? Are there, are there as many folks here that collect that more here than down there? Good question. Um, their association down there doesn't have nearly the number of members that ours does here. However, there have been times in the past when it was quite a bit bigger. The Mexican collectors are more focused on, you know, the old Whitman albums where you stuck coins in holes and it was more of a, I've got the coin than being concerned about the condition of the coin. There's two completely different mentalities, although it's changing. So the Mexicans were late adopters of slab coins. Uh, the Americans were early adopters. The Americans uh, are focused on quality. We have a number of collectors that don't collect by date. They're type coin collectors. They are paper money collectors that are uh, looking for their condition focused. Uh, whereas the Mexican collectors don't tend to be that as much yet, although it's changing and, it, and they, they kind of follow this trend. I would tell you that as far as are there more or less here or there? No, I don't think so. I think there's a, a lot of collectors in Mexico. Okay. And there's a lot of different ways to collect Mexican numismatics. I mean, you know, like, like you've mentioned, the, um, the eight reals that travel all over the world, you could do chop mark versions of them. You can do anything from the 1905 reform to now and all the different uh, commemorative series that have come out. What's a great way for somebody who's interested in getting involved in that, getting started, pursue it, and, you know, they're not going to be at the level where they're attending the convention, but, you know, they want to get started and maybe five years from now they will be. Big question. <laughs> so uh, back up a second, though, uh, b before I answer that, and it, you, you touched on something there that's really important. Mexico uh, for, gosh, since the Spanish got there, really, in the, in the 1500s when they produced the first mint, Mexico was producing the bulk of the world's silver. And so the only way that they had to export that silver, not the only way, but the, but the best way that they had was to mint coinage. The eight real was China's coin for, I think it was going on a hundred years where that was the coin that was available in China. They had coins from other countries available to them, whether it was our trade dollar or whatever, but it was the coin of choice there. So the Mexicans produced an incredible amount of material that, were, that was used all over the world uh, as a coinage in different countries and accepted in, in different countries. And I would think because of that situation, then the nat natural connection would be there were a lot of shipwrecks in that era as well. And so I would think Mexican coinage tended to end up in a lot of shipwrecks. It, it did. And there's been a lot of that material reco recovered. Uh, Dan Sedwick out of Florida uh, is kind of specializes in that sort of thing in his auctions. Uh, down there, uh, there's been a, a, just a tremendous amount of material that's come into circulation through collectors. Uh, there's a lot of people that just collect treasure coins. Back to your earlier question. So it, right now, there is, we're seeing a tremendous amount of new collectors in the marketplace. And let me talk about paper money. It's the same as coins. We can talk about that too. 
but we're seeing a great deal of interest in paper money now that wasn't there five years ago. I mean, there's always been collectors, but it's been this big surge lately of people that are becoming interested in this. And there's a lot of material that's available in the sub $50 market. There's a lot of material available in the sub $20 market because in, in Mexican currency and as well as coins, I pick on currency because it's kind of my specialty. But um, for instance, the, the Mexicans had individual banks as we did early on in different states that were privately owned and no central issue of currency until 1920-ish. Yeah. Uh, when the Banco de Mexico issues were finally starting to get out, they tried it a few times along the way and it, it just never, it never worked. But that creates a lot of banknotes that are produced by a lot of them were produced by the American Banknote company of their, their gorgeous notes. And some of it is, there's a lot of material that's under 30, 40, 50 bucks that's out there. And there's a lot of um, of the uh, revolutionary pieces too that are in that price range. For at least they were when I started picking up a few of them five six years ago. There, there absolutely are. Revolution, revolution <laughs> is a, is a crazy uh, series of stuff. So just briefly, the Reader's Digest version during the revolution, everybody took their money and hid it. All the specie, all the silver and gold, just disappeared instantly. Uh, it went underground. So there was no, there was no coinage uh, in the marketplace. So people started producing paper money. And whether that was the state of Sinaloa all the way down to Sanborn's Coffee Shop in Mexico City, okay? And everything in between, state, municipal, local, ranches had stores where they issued script that was uh, uh, to the bearer on demand. Uh, I just, there was like, I think there's like 4,000 individual issues. One of our guys is, has, has assembled the biggest collection of that stuff that's ever been assembled. And there's like 3,000 pieces in it. And it's by far and away, he's, he's still got seven or 800 to go that we know of. Uh, but there's a, there are probably, there are hundreds of issues that are available, really interesting stuff that are available in the sub $30 market down to five and $10. And that's the area where we're seeing a lot of new interest is people coming in and going, I don't know much about this. I'm going to dabble in this. I'm going to go buy a few things and get started. And so they start in as with anything else in any other kind of collecting, they start with what they feel comfortable with. And then as they gain comfort, they move on and start moving up. And that's what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of pressure on that low end of the market in terms of inventory. There's a lot of demand. And it's more about inventory than it is about quality in terms of grading or that type of thing. Is that the way, is that a correct assessment? I would say, yes, that is because um, unlike here, if you wanted to go buy uh, uh of 520 saints in MS 63, you pick up the phone, you call heritage and you say, Hey guys, send me 500 of these easy peasy. But with the Mexican currency and to a large extent coins, it's what you're presented with. It's what you get the opportunity to purchase. And it isn't as focused on grade uh, as 
for, for the average collector, it isn't. I, we have people that are focused on coins that are selling the, the, well, the highest. One of our guys uh, purchased, I think, the highest price Mexican coin at something a little north of $500,000, which was a royal, a gold royal. But that area that's from about $10,000 up, that, that's a, a little different game. And it's people that are focused on the highest graded things out there and stuff. The average collector of uh, uh, paper money is not that focused on that. Now, when you get to things like, take eight reals, for instance, dominantly the late 1800s, most of it was produced uh, during the Republic period. There you can get into a situation where it's more readily available and you can look at, you can be more grade conscious in, in that area. 20th century has become super popular lately. And 20th century coinage, you definitely can get into looking at, I want to be in the top five pop on NGC, that sort of thing, if you're selling. Uh, something like the Caballito Peso or the railroad coin or, you know, I mean, you know there's some, some classic designs in there that are just, um, you know, they're gorgeous anyway, but boy, do they scream at you when they're in high, high grades. Yes, they absolutely do. The Caballitos, you're getting into a pretty, a, a more pricey subject there now. NGC 66 Caballito now might be five or $6,000 or so. Uh, but um, uh, you can buy a, a unk one for four or five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. So it's now, still accessible. Sorry, Larry. No, go ahead. Uh, you had mentioned, I mean, keeping it kind of on currency here, because you mentioned earlier that one of the presenters for the uh, convention is going to be focusing on counterfeits, and I would think with the pop popularity of the realis that uh, coins get ca uh, counterfeited quite a bit. But what about paper? Is it being counterfeited? My wife was interested in like Confederate currency here in the U.S. And that is popular to be uh, counterfeited a lot. You see a lot of fakes and touristy type stuff. Is that happening with Mexican currency too? So our the counterfeit seminar that runs at the convention uh, that Mike Donegan's in charge of this year uh, is coins. It's purely coins. We don't have uh, issues much with uh, Mexican currency. The, the issues that we have is where people are finding things that were like, uh, there's some notes that are in the book that they thought were currency that, that aren't. They were uh, from an accounting school where they printed the, the <laughs> currency like Monopoly money that they teach them how to keep track of their cash drawer in their accounting class, that sort of thing. Um, out and out counterfeits of paper money are rare until you get back into some of the script stuff from the earliest printings. Uh, there's some of the earliest issues around 1810 to 1820. There's some things like that that are out there. But man, I mean, you're in a pretty rarefied area. The Chinese aren't making it. No. Uh, they are with eight reals. That's a good segue to coins, and I know that fakes of these exist a little bit. I've always talked about bullion as being a gateway drug to get people into the hobby, and then you know once they get comfortable, then they look for something else. How many folks come into the series or the topic because of Libertad's, the uh, the modern bullion, and and start there and then take it 
to something 200 years earlier or some other direction? A lot, a, a, a lot. That's a, that's a really good entry point. Uh, the Libertad series, uh, a lot of the silver series, the railroads, for instance, that are not in top pop, that are just nice coins. Uh, people would buy those because the premiums over silver aren't so, so high. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. The 68 Olympics coins, the Hidalgo five pesos, there's, they produced a lot of silver in the 50s uh, that was really a way of, of, of exporting uh, excess silver. That was kind of the end of that era, but. On, on the flip side, they have, uh, I think, what's the record for the smallest fineness of silver in a, in a coin, uh, 10%. I mean, you have 10%, 40%. I mean, there's, there's such a range of silver Mexican all the way up to the, the Libertad and, and of course, you know, the classic stuff. It's, uh, but there are folks who stock up those, those one pesos of the 10% fineness. And, you know, that, that's just, it's just fun to have a big pile of silver, even though it's, like, well, you'd have to go to a whole lot of trouble to get the silver. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it may not be refinable. Uh, yeah. it, it's a more of a silver wash. That's in that period of 1957 to 67, the Moreos coins. Yeah. Interestingly, if you can find a BU one of those, uh, and they're hard to come by because of the, the way they coated the planchet uh, with the silver, it, it, they don't last and they, they discolor and all that sort of stuff. But one of those in a in a sixty five or better holder is a hundred and fifty dollar coin these days. Yeah, a lot of that has been the last few years, right? Yes, absolutely. Just in the last two or three years, in particular, this high grade modern thing is really starting to take off, and it's really interesting to watch because it's a lot of stuff that we ignored in piles not fifteen years ago. Yeah, but now it's dispersed. Yeah, there are no more hordes to be found, maybe, or very, very, very few. And so what's out there is out there, and you can't, you can't unsmoke that cigarette. <laughs> you, you can't. can't. Yeah, and that's true to some extent of the paper money, too. These hordes kept coming out for years and years and years. There'd be people found things, and they'd bring it to market. And uh, here in the last five years or so, boy, that's really uh, slimmed out. We, we were down at a show in Tucson about 15 years ago, uh, it, it walked in a gun show and a guy had a pile of, uh, the Chihuahua, Pancho Villa Chihuahua series notes, probably the most common of the revolutionary notes. He had 30,000 of them. And, uh, we bought it all. And it was at the time God, we stepped up and paid big money, 27 cents a piece, I think. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and today, uh, you know, those notes are, are three and four dollars and we don't see hordes of them anymore. I, I, I had another guy uh, come by the table at Long Beach here four or five years ago, 10 now it's been longer than that, and showed me a very common little Sonora note that's worth three bucks. And he says, do you buy these? And I said, well, sure. He says, would you buy a lot of them? I said, define a lot of them. And he said, well, let me tell you this story. And so he bought a building in Nogales on the American side. And he had to fix the roof. And he went up in the roof. And they had to do some repairs structurally. And there's a trunk up there. And I said, well, how many are in there? He said, well, come on out to the car, you know. So 
out we go. And I don't know, 25, 30,000 of these notes in a trunk, you know, <laughs> it was the top two or three inches was all rotted, but the stuff that was down at the bottom was new. Those kinds of things don't happen anymore. I shouldn't say don't, but it's, they're few and far between. There's no big, huge amounts of that revolutionary currency left. There was still quite a bit, uh, 25 years ago, the, uh, the individual banks like the Banco Sonora, I'll just pick one of them. When these guys were operating individually right toward the beginning of the revolution, so into the 1910 to 15 range, they were printing through the American Banknote Company. When these banks got closed down, sometimes they had as much as a pallet of currency that was left that wasn't signed. They take them, they sign them, put a tax stamp on the back of it, take the serial number and issue it. Well, they had all these banknotes printed that weren't signed. We call them remainders, as, as they do here too. But they use that money in movies uh, in the U.S. Uh, when they're blowing up banks and, and the old cowboy movies and stuff, there was a lot of that. And that's all gone today too. That's, that stuff is $20 a piece now, and they're still gorgeous notes. Yeah, there's there's quite a quite a range. It's funny you mentioned. I I can see within almost arm's reach. Show me the money by Fred Reed about movie money notes. So and then there's a lot of great Mexican stuff in there. And it, it's um, you know, the, there's just so many points of interest in the theme and the area. You know, you've mentioned that U.S. Mexes uh, the association is really a bunch of more serious, almost in some cases, scholarly uh, folks, but you, you welcome the casual collector. Where should casual collectors go? I mean, I have a couple of, you know, the Don Bailey books by Whitman and some other stuff. You're, you know, the Mexican paper money book, but how should people get started in this? Um, and is us Mex a numismatic association right for them if they're starting or is that something later? What are your thoughts on closing thoughts on, on that? I'm certainly, I'll apologize if I gave the impression that it was more uh, designed for the, for the sophisticated collector, because that's simply not the case. Uh, it's a great place to get started because you can get facts and you can learn your way around and, 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 and where to get information and all of that sort of thing. I'm uh, pitching the association. You can get a digital membership to the association for $20 a year. Just go to usmex.org and sign up. There is a, just a ton of really good information on the website. Uh, we produce a journal, a quarterly journal that's 35, 40 pages every quarter that's on all sorts of different topics. And the, the information there is really well suited to the beginner as well as to the sophisticated collector. Uh, as with anything that you're, you're going to try to collect, trying to get comfortable is the hard part and, and feeling like you're, you're learning something and that you're not being taken advantage of and, and that sort of thing. It's a great place to go. It's an absolutely great place to go and come to the convention. That's another step down that road, but awesome. Um, yeah. 
Awesome. And uh, we want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, we do, uh, again, appreciate it and look forward to talking again in the future, maybe seeing you at an A&A or another show out there. And, um, you know, it's a great topic. Um, uh, there's certainly um, a lot of love here for uh, Mexican and Spanish colonial and Latin American numismatics uh, at CoinWorld. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that was our interview with Corey Frampton, U.S. Mexican Numismatic Association. I would love to be at that convention, that gathering. It's really a gathering of friends and, and colleagues. Unfortunately, alas, we'll not be there. But, you know, there's always next year. And, and if you're going, please let us know how it went and how you liked it and what you learned. Uh, so, you know, we can share that with everyone listening. We do, want again, want to thank Coin World Plus and thank you, the listener, uh, for making this possible and making this worth doing. And uh, we do appreciate you being here each and every week. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you tell your friends. But make sure that you keep on pursuing this hobby that means so much to all of us. And until next time, have fun and keep on collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.